We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and take a peek at the website andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. There you can listen to old archive shows and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Good morning, gentlemen. Hello, Good to see you. Scott. Yeah. Going to start with joint ownership. We are. And uh, last week we spent uh, a good section talking about the do's and don'ts around mm-hmm. beneficiary mm-hmm. designations. Right. And, um, you know, the the purpose and the, re- the rationale for uh, beneficiary designations most often is to simplify things from mm-hmm. an estate perspective, uh, to maybe save uh, probate tax is, is a big motivation on mm-hmm. direct beneficiaries, and um, simplifying things from a legal perspective too, when it, at death, to make sure that it's simple, it's quick, and right. it gets money into somebody, a beneficiary's hands quickly. Right. And um, But in general, there are more situations where it doesn't make sense to designate a beneficiary on your registered accounts, your RSPs, RIFs, etc., versus um, designating one. So mm-hmm. there is, there are unique situations, or I guess special situations where it does make sense. And and the one I'll just mention, which is that if you simply have one individual that mm-hmm. you're leaving your money to, so yeah, you have one simple. adult child, mm-hmm. or you have one charity where everything's going to, mm-hmm. whatever that may be, then you can think about a beneficiary designation. Otherwise, be very careful and cautious about the beneficiary designation. In the same sort of genre, people will think about joint ownership as a strategy to simplify their estate Mm -hmm. or to particularly minimize estate tax. Mm -hmm. And this often occurs between a parent, an aging parent, for example, and an adult child. Mm -hmm. And the goal, again, is, is they're coming from the right place. They're trying to either get that money directly into the hands of a child uh, an adult child, or they're trying to simplify their estate, or they're trying to minimize probate tax. Mm-hmm. And that probate tax is the one when actually probably 90% of the time when I hear people talking yeah. about joint ownership, it's about mm-hmm. it's about Absolutely. trying to avoid probate mm-hmm. tax, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so the, the, the irony is, is that you can end up adding a joint owner, but ab- uh, com- continuing or sorry, uh, not minimizing probate tax at all. Oh, really? And we're sort of going to step through why that happens and how the Supreme Court has actually stepped in in this process. Because, you know, in speaking with lawyers today and estate lawyers that specialize in this area, um, you know, they say, I I make a lot more money dealing with problems after the fact Mm -hmm. than in advance of making making a will. You know, you don't make a lot of money creating a will for somebody in general, but at the end of the day, all the problems that happen, and these problems always never come up or never raise their head while you're alive. It's only after death when the problems start. And I've got stories, I'm sure Don has stories of families that are in not, you know, call it torn apart, mm-hmm. not speaking to each other, yeah. um, you know, just fighting over things that resulted from joint ownership. Which is funny because you think if you have and you've taken the time to get a financial planner, the chances are you've worked a lot of that out, but not always. Yeah. And this is, and I'm hoping that if somebody, if you are working with a planner, then you would have gone through some of the steps and sort Mm -hmm. of the tick boxes to understand is joint ownership really what you're trying to achieve. And you may have also been encouraged to better document that Mm -hmm. process and what you're trying to do.
It's also kind of a test to see if you actually have a financial planner, to yeah. be honest. Yeah, good point. You, quite often you have an investment planner, an AKA financial planner, but they're not really going through you know, the estate considerations, the tax considerations, they're simply going over investments. Yeah, you might have, so let's say you walked into um, a financial institution or you talked to your investment advisor and you're saying, you know, I was reading somewhere that uh, I should be looking at joint ownership to minimize probate tax. And sometimes the response might be, oh yeah, well, we can do that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, there, there's no... <laughs> As opposed to whether you need to do that. Exactly. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, we can do that for we you. We can do that for you. We'll, we can help you out with that. Yeah. And um, It's like getting floor mats for your car. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> whether you need it or not, sure. you're getting them. And, um, you know, and I think that... Um, uh, that, that this is a very, very tricky area. Now, a lot of you listening may already have done this, where you've created joint accounts with the intention of doing exactly what I'm saying, trying to minimize probate tax, simplify your estate, get it to the into an adult child's hands at death. And um, and so we want to step you through to understand what you've actually done, and maybe have you actually created a joint account, or maybe mm. you haven't created a joint account in the process. And this is above and beyond generally going with joint with your spouse. Right. Correct. Okay. Yeah, this is about an adult child. So, oh, okay. Right? So we're thinking about a parent oftentimes, and parents are right. both parents, where they'll add their adult child mm-hmm. as joint owner not a spouse, okay? So the first thing to consider is they're basically in common law in all all Canadian provinces except Quebec, there's two forms of joint ownership. The first one is joint tenancy and the second one is tenants in common. Do you know what the difference is? No. Okay. So in- (laughs) You said that awfully quick, Scott. (laughs) Well, why waste? I don't want to think about it. We know joint tenants, and and sometimes you've seen the initials JTWROS, joint uh, joint tenancy with right of survivorship, and the concept or joint tenancy referred to as joint tenancy with right of survivorship. Each owner has an equal and identical interest uh, to the uh, to each other. Mm-hmm. So there could be three owners, there could be just two owners, it could be ten owners. Everybody has the exact same ownership percentage right. and they share equally. One dies, the account, their share of the account reverts to the other joint owners right. or owner. Goes back into the pie. Goes back into the pie. So in that case, if you had added a, uh, an adult child as a joint tenant, joint tenancy, joint t- tenancy with right of survivorship and you die, then it would go to them. Mm-hmm. You go to the adult child. So in essence, you've achieved the goal yeah. of trying to avoid probate, getting it to them, et cetera. But is it really going to happen? And that I'll follow that up in a second. The second type of joint ownership is called tenancy in common. And this is where each interest of the owner is doesn't need to be identical. So somebody might own 60% of the investment mm-hmm. or the asset and somebody else owns 40. So it could be, or it could be 50-50 still. But basically at death, their interest when you die is transferred to the estate and then distributed based on what somebody's will says. Mm-hmm. So in this case, you haven't achieved anything in right. terms of uh, avoiding probate tax or simplifying the legal um, issues around your estate. But um, 
you certainly are, the money is going to be distributed based on your wishes, mm-hmm. and uh, but you're not saving anything there. And this is often important in a second marriage. You might think about joint tenancy because you each might have a percentage of, the, of a home or right. an asset or an investment, and you want your share to go to children of a previous marriage, you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So that part is, is fairly straightforward, joint tenants or tenancy in common. The next area is what we call legal ownership versus beneficial ownership. And in common law, we distinguish between legal ownership and beneficial ownership is that an individual is the legal owner, but holds the property for the benefit of another person. This is often considered to be acting as sort of as a trustee and holding the property in trust for the person uh, who's the beneficial ownership or the beneficiary. The legal owner can give instructions about the property, but they're basically, they cannot personally benefit from the property. Okay. And then the next area, which is what we call a presumption of resulting trust. Now, this is this sounds complicated, but it's basically came out of a Supreme Court decision in 2007, where the court was trying to understand, was a parent trying to add an adult owner, an adult joint owner, uh, for the purpose of estate planning, or for the purpose of gifting them a share of their asset. And so this presumption of resulting trust basically came down to the point that in the absence of any other documentation, if an account is set up between you and an adult child with joint ownership, the courts will assume that you were trying to create something called a resulting trust. And what a resulting trust means is that at your death, that joint owner has no uh, beneficial, it's not their asset. Mm -hmm. It basically reverts back to your estate, ends up going through your will, you pay probate tax, you pay all the legal costs, and your your asset is going to be distributed to your beneficiaries based on your will. Mm -hmm. So in this example, the 2007 case, you basically created a joint account with an adult child, but the Mm -hmm. court said, well, you know what? That's not going to hold in terms of uh, getting that money to them and avoiding probate. Basically, that money ends up back in your will and right. distributed based on your will. Do you know how long that took, Andy? <laughs> 2007? Yeah, from the time they actually made the judgment. Gosh, well, I don't know. Yeah, because, you know, it's one thing. You settle the estate. You have this joint ownership. Everybody's got their money. And then they realize, whoops, you know what? That um, we have to still go through probate. It didn't actually go to the Bennett joint owners mm-hmm. really easily as as we thought it would. And then there may be a, a big tax bill, and that would be a probate tax bill. Right. And yeah. so, where's this money going to come from? And you know who ends up paying normally is the executor of the will. Mm. They are liable for this for this error because right. it's very hard to get it from the beneficiaries. Um, they're, exactly. it, it, it They've could, spent it they already? Kind of, quite often, it's no longer with them anymore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so the one actually do, who's probably at the most risk is the executor that allowed this in the first place. Hmm. And so this is uh, when, a, when a resulting trust is created. So again, a parent has decided to add a, an adult child as joint owner, uh, but the courts decided it was a resulting trust, then that means there was no change in the beneficial ownership when the parent adds the child. So no capital gains or losses are going to be triggered. During the parent's lifetime, the parent is reporting all the income and capital gains. So if there's interest, dividends, capital, they're reporting it all on their tax return. And um, 
During their lifetime, the child has no access or no rights to any part of the assets, including their creditors. So if the child went bankrupt or something, it's still not their money, and so it would be protected from any kind of bankruptcy litigation. Now, if the parent dies first, then the parent is going to realize all the capital gains on the death. Their asset is going to be considered part of the estate, and the child should transfer that asset to the executor of the estate to then be distributed based on the will. And uh, so a lot of times people are trying to then fight this. Well, mom or dad really intended that I'm supposed to get the money. Right. And so there's, you know, rebutting, rebutting the presumption of a resulting trust. In other words, if you want to go against the Supreme Court, you've got to have evidence. And the evidence really has to be proven that, you know, the parent intended to be a gift outright and, um, or the parent tended to re- to retain the ownership, but basically that can be documented by a lawyer in form of a formal document. It could be uh, something, a letter that's signed by both the parent and the adult child. And um, but the proof then becomes in how was that asset treated? And the a classic example, and we're going to, uh, I'll come back after the commercial to finish this up. But the classic example is where the joint owner, the adult child was added as joint owner, but the parent continued to report all the investment income mm-hmm. in, instead of splitting the right. tax receipt 50 50 between right. the adult child and the parent. That's your first clue that this was not set up properly as a joint account. So we'll talk more about that when we come back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now, leave a message. They'll get back to you. 905-529-7165. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now. Leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. Talking about joint ownership. Yeah, here. so we were talking about just before the commercial about um, how you know if you've created a joint account with your adult child, a legitimate joint account, or is it going to be considered a presumption of a resulting trust. And so this makes a big difference in terms of the probate tax and how this asset will be treated. The first clue that we had is you've added your an adult child onto a joint account, but you as the parent continued to report all the interest, dividends, and capital gains on so any T3s or T5s on your tax return. The second clue is that if it was an investment account and there was a capital gain on that account, then when you add a joint owner, you're deemed to have sold half of that account. And gifted it to the joint owner. Mm. And so you would trigger a capital gain on that. So an example might be a cottage. You decide to add an adult child on a cottage property. You're deemed to have sold half of it. If you've added that person on and Mm. now legitimately going forward, they will have a joint ownership position and a right of survivorship at death. And you would save the probate. So a lot of times people kind of want their cake and eat it too. Right, they want to add the joint owner, but they're not willing to actually mm-hmm. divvy up the taxes properly and report it correctly. So this ends up coming full circle with the wrong intentions. The money ends up going back into their their will, and probate tax is being paid. And this only becomes a problem when someone dies. Right now, while you're alive, you know, as the adult, you're fine. Everything's okay. going along swimmingly. Nobody's worried. It's mom's money. It's dad's money. Then you die, and now everybody thinks it should be part of the estate. 
it wasn't really joint. And now the, but the one child thinks it should be joint, mm-hmm. of course, because they, you know, maybe they were helping mom and dad, mom or dad out more than the other people or who knows all the different reasons. So depending on which result you want, you better make sure that you've got sufficient documentation about it. But we'll give you a quick example. <clears throat> so let's say Julia, who's the, um, a widow now, she has three adult children, Finnegan, Hazel, and Henry. And during her lifetime, Julia subsidized... That's not the real names. Come on. Who, who names her <laughs> kid think? Finnegan? Do, do you think? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so during, uh, during her lifetime, Julia subsidized Finnegan's medical school education. Mm. And she also helped make a down payment for Hazel on her house. And ironically, though, um, she never made any gifts to Henry because Henry was always doing well financially and very well in terms of managing his money. So um, so she decides that, you know what, I'm going to add Henry as a joint owner yeah. to one of my investment accounts. And in this case, at the time um, of Julie's, Julia's death, that investment account was worth $95,000. And that's after all her debts and taxes are paid. We know that her estate, including the excluding the investment account, is worth six hundred thousand. So she has six hundred thousand in her estate, and she has this ninety-five thousand that was a joint account with Henry. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, um, you know, and, and her will divides things equally to between the three of them. The question is, how much should each child receive? Right. So according to Henry, he should get what? One third of the 600,000, mm-hmm. 200 grand plus the 95. And of course, Finnegan and Hazel are thinking, well, really it's 695,000 total divided by three. We should each get 231,000 versus 200 and you get 295. So, you know, is that going to cause a problem? Guaranteed. It may not always be on the surface, but there's always going to be some kind of resent around, oh, you got 295,000, we each got 200. Does everybody you know. know what everybody gets out of this? Yes. Is everybody, how, what, what happens when they, sorry to go off topic here, what right. happens when it's time for the will to be read? Is everybody, does everybody have to be there? I mean, does everybody know what's going on? Well, the executor would be responsible for distributing the, um, figuring out what the estate is, right. how much it is after taxes and everything's paid, and then who the beneficiaries, name beneficiaries were, right. and then each beneficiary has to be contacted right. and they will be receiving their share. Now, wills are public, uh, right. are public documents, so, right. you know, there's nothing you can hide. I mean, if it says a third, a third, mm-hmm. a third, it says a third, a third, a third. Um, I'm not sure logistically, like, do you have to present it to somebody yeah, and show them? Yeah. But, um, you know, in this case, uh, for the example, the, the, the issue arises around this joint account. And we're basically, if Julia, the, you know, the adult, the, the adult here, or sorry, the, uh, the parent, if she wants to be certain that Henry gets that 95,000, then A, she should have triggered the capital gains on that investment account right. when she added Henry, split the tax receipts every year between Henry and herself, and probably documented with her lawyer if at the, to the final thing to mm-hmm. make sure that, that it was clear that this, that, you know, I helped you out with medical school. I helped you out with the down payment. This right. is Henry's money. Right. So bottom line is... Um, beneficiaries, joint ownership, all of these things, you know, we go into the idea with the right intention. We're trying to minimize tax. We're trying to simplify things, et cetera. But boy, you can really create a huge nightmare in terms of family dynamics after your death. Don't think you're thinking now everything's fine. It's good. After your death, there's going to, that's when the can of worms is open. But taxes, you know, is something we're always trying to figure out how to minimize, whether it's estate taxes, probate taxes, or income tax. And I know Don, you want to talk a little more about that as well. Absolutely. We have a, 
We're paying lots of tax. Uh, we don't have to be convinced of that. And uh, it's kind of interesting, actually. It's, you know, we're coming down to the, the wire in terms of the federal election right yes. now. And you're hearing, oh, I don't know, a lot of, a couple of parties particularly saying the rich don't pay their fair share. And I'm thinking, okay, well, I happen to be reading over the weekend and there was a, a whole article about this. And really, anybody says they're not paying How their... How do they f- define rich? Mm. Well, that's a good question. I'm How do gonna, you define the middle class? I'm gonna, yeah, that's even a harder... Yeah. You know, depending where you live, middle exactly. class one place, yeah. it, sh- it should not be income-based. Yeah, yeah. Because Toronto mm-hmm. middle class would be probably making $30,000 more than, say, somebody in Red Deer, Alberta. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or Saskatchewan, rather. Mm-hmm. So, so again, it depends where you live. And uh, that's the, actually a moving target. Yeah. So to just have a blanket amount of income saying this is the middle class, yeah, that can't be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I was fortunate enough to visit um, New Brunswick. Mm-hmm. And what you can buy out there for a couple hundred thousand dollars, yeah. you can mm-hmm. basically get a down payment for in yeah. the yeah. GTA. Yeah. So, yeah. But it was interesting. Uh, and anybody says that the rich aren't paying their fair share, this author said definitely disingenuous. Because looking at the actual stats. You mean, does that mean it's a lie? Uh, <coughs> yes. Okay. Okay, well, let's put it right out there. Because if you're on the fence trying to say, should I vote? And I'm listening to all the rhetoric and, yeah. and about, yeah, you know, those rich people should be paying more. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, rich is, is, they didn't actually say what rich meant. Yeah. They didn't come up with a number. And going to back to... And when you say that, it just means anybody making more money than you. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Often, really? yeah. That's, that's I mean, the truth. Somebody's that's got fair. more than I yeah, yeah, They fair. must be rich. And, and, you know, it's interesting going with what, you know, Andy was talking about trying to save probate tax. People are going to the nth degree trying to save 1.5%. Now, Mm -hmm. not saying it's nothing. Because if you had a million dollar estate and uh, and you had to pay probate tax on it, that's Mm $15,000. Okay, it's about one point. You know, it's a fair chunk. It's like a massive speeding ticket. Nobody wants it. And, And on top of that, you're already in a province here in Ontario that's paying 53.53%. So if you've got an income because all the RSPs are cashed in on the year of death and capital gains from, a, say, a cottage if you owned it, then your income could easily be over 220000 Now you're over 53% tax. So that's insult to injury. So here we are. Let's try to get rid of some of our assets and, and avoid probate. And, you know, I don't want to pay that extra $15,000. I've already paid $300,000 or $500,000 in income tax at yeah. death. So it's this insult to injury. So I understand why people are doing anything they can to avoid this tax. We pay too much. And so they took a look and said, well, let's say you were in the top 1%. And the article didn't actually say how much tax, uh, what that income would be. But it worked out that you would pay 14.7% of all taxes collected in Canada. Mm -hmm. So that top 1%, 1%, top 1%. Now that includes property taxes, payroll tax, sales tax, Income tax. So that one percent pays fourteen percent. Almost fifteen percent. Almost fifteen percent of all taxes, all taxes right, collected right, right. in Canada. Mm-hmm. Okay, so th- I suggest that's a fair bit. Mm-hmm. On top of that, if they actually just looked at income tax, which is actually what I was looking at originally, so I continue reading. Oh, okay, that's even worse. Income tax alone worked out to eighteen percent. So the top one percent were paying eighteen percent of all income tax collected in Canada. Mm. Again. That's a lot of money put on the 1% already. So, and what it did is the other ones are more consumption taxes. So if you're paying property taxes, that means you own a house. Yeah. Well, depending, it doesn't really matter if you're middle class or whatever, you're, it has nothing to do with your income. You're paying that tax. The value, yeah. Or if you're buying a, a, you know, a new car, you're paying um, provincial taxes on that. 
HST tax. Yeah. So all these different taxes add up. Those are a lot of consumption taxes. That's why 1% worked out 15% of all taxes rather than 18% of simply income tax. Mm-hmm. Okay. But then they said, well, you know, that's all good, but how much is the poor paying? Well, the bottom 50% of income earners. So if you drew a line of what the income earners were and you just put a line right through the middle and say, okay, how much tax do those people pay in Canada? It works out to 9%. That's the lowest 50%. The bottom 50%. Right. Yeah. So 50% of the income earners are paying 9%. Right. The other 50% are paying 91%. Mm-hmm. It's a tax system that's already been more than put on to the, the backs of yeah. the, the higher income yeah. earners. The more you make, the more you pay. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's always been the case. But it did, they did, back in 2006, the Liberals already moved them for 46% to 53%, that's 46.53 to 53.53, back in 2016. For the marginal tax rate. That's huge. Yeah. That's, a, that's a marginal tax rate. And, and what a lot of middle class people say, well, that's okay, I never earned that anyway. Mm-hmm. In fact, very, rare, very few people do because the top 10% of earners in Canada made 187,000. That's mm-hmm. a household. Mm-hmm. That's not even a one income earner. Mm. So if you're in the top 10%, you look at your household and see if you made over 186,000 last year. If you did, you're in the top 10% of income earners, okay? Hmm. Then you paid, certainly you're in the 91% that you're paying tax for everybody. Right. So the thing is, and and this is what I was, again, listening to the election, it really drives me nuts, is that, yeah, we're going to just use the government's money to spend it on this, Mm -hmm. and we're going to add more services. We're doing this, this, and everything, and I don't want to get too political, but this government's money, where does this come from? You. Okay, and this is <laughs> this is coming from the tax bill, mm-hmm. the tax hoard. So again, kind of interesting stats, and I thought, well, here's a perfect example of you know it'd be nice if they actually use numbers when you hear yeah. some of these uh, commercials or or what have you the debates, and they say, okay, what does that actually mean? And you're not hearing a lot of numbers; mm-hmm. you just hear a lot of rhetoric. So. That being the case, I can understand going back to Andy saying why I'm so. Why do people go through these, deg- you know, this nth degree to save probate tax? Yeah. Even though it's one point five percent, I totally get it. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, the, these middle class earners, whatever that happens to mean, they all of a sudden a lot of them become rich the year of death. Yeah, and they've never paid more than say thirty percent tax in all their life, but now they're paying fifty three and a half percent at death, death because of the income tax. Mm-hmm. And, and this is where a lot of people get confused. They think, oh, well, I understand. I actually had a, you know, a client's son call me because unfortunately the mother, who's my client, was going to pass away. She, she had some assets with me. She says, I have to cash all this in because I understand there's a 53% tax mm-hmm. on my mother's assets once she dies. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, it doesn't matter where. It's if it's RSP assets. It's, not, it's added to your income. Yeah. So it's not if you're over 220, you pay... 53.5% just on the amount over 220. Right. And all the normal little brackets before that, you pay tax on those. So, interesting subject. I know there's a lot of topic, a lot of people having the debates on who should we, who should we elect this time, but I think tax should be one of your considerations because that's one thing, well, hopefully, that uh, you know the elected can control. Mm-hmm. Um, now looking at investments, it's kind of interesting. We're having a pretty good year, shockingly enough. Like the markets are up, and I know we had um, Bill Chornis on a, a little while ago, a couple weeks ago, and, and he was saying how the markets were up 17% in the U.S. year to date, and that was two weeks ago. So again, uh, they haven't changed too much this time. And 
I'm thinking, okay, well, I guess a lot of people must be probably, you know, done pretty good this year. Interesting enough that flows, the net flows going into equities this year is negative. In fact, the net flows before last, the end of last year was negative with um, a lot of the tariffs and so forth back in December of 2018. Right. There was a lot of money going out of the stock markets and going into bonds. And people think, oh, that's a safety net. And that's still happening all throughout 2019. Money has been coming out of the equity markets, going into fixed income throughout. And, and, and in fact, actually, I was looking at a Canadian one and the Canadian equity on, and this is using ETFs, exchange traded funds. They take a look. It's very easy to follow the flows where the money's going. It actually was negative by, for all, and, and a huge positive for bonds. Mm-hmm. So negative for equities, positive for bonds. That just means more people are pulling money out of the equity markets mm-hmm. than going in, and more people are putting money in the bond than taking out. Right. And a huge discrepancy there. So I'm thinking, okay, well, I, I'm curious. I, I wonder how Dalbar is doing on this whole thing. And now Dalbar looks at, and this is a, a, an outside service that looks at all the income, uh, all the investment in, in products out there and looks at what flows are going, what are the returns? And they measure the rate of returns of, of, of the stock indexes. And particularly they look at the US one because it's the largest in the world. And they said since 1988, now this is to the end of 88, okay? And this is after there was a cr- bit of a downturn in, in December, about 10%. For a 30-year track record, the U.S. markets did 10%. And I said, oh, that's pretty good, 30 years. You know, you put your money in, doubled every 7.2 years. If, let's say you put it into a mutual fund, and let's say the mutual fund added no value, and it charged you 2%. So if you put it in for 30 years, you lost 2% per year simply for fees. And that, that's a big assumption because, generally speaking, the measuring stick for a mutual fund is how did it do against the market after fees? And yes, it is difficult to overcome the whole market and there is, they do add some benefit, but they may not get the whole 2% back. So even if they end up at 9%, um, it's still not too bad. But as it turned out, even if you got 8% and the mutual funds did no value at all, which is unlikely, you'd be firing the mutual fund managers, that's a small price to pay. Because you know what? They're following the, the clients and how they do if they left it in the markets and took it out of the markets and they followed the fund flows and calculated what the client performance was in that 30 years. It's quite interesting. You had to guess what the client's actual return was. Nothing to do with the, just the markets. And this is, again, no fees. Mm-hmm. Simply taking it in and putting it back in. What would you guess, Scott? Well, I'm guessing it's not better than 10%. I guarantee <laughs> they didn't beat 10%. Five? Five. Pretty good. Higher or lower than five, Andy? Uh, well, I'm definitely going to go lower. Oh, wow. Good, good. 4.1%. Hey. 4.1%. You were pretty close. Yeah, five, 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 you five yeah. Yeah. four and stars is, there. <laughs> so my question here is, if you're looking at running it yourself, our behavior is our biggest deterrent for actually doing well in Not our business. Costs. Massive no. cost, way above the cost. And this is if there was no cost to invest. Mm. If there's zero cost to invest, <clears throat> clients got four, 
the markets did 10. And this is a 30-year track record. This is following this all the way through. So I'll, I'll continue this after the break. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now. They'll get back to you. 905-529-7165. And check out their website at andyanddon.com. There you can listen to old archive shows and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. We're talking about investing and your behavior. Yes, and and how you're really costing. And again, I, I honestly, I've said this for years, and humans are not wired to make money. They're wired to do poor in the stock markets. There's so What about many spend? Are we wired to spend it? Oh, fantastic. You know, you look at most commercials, they're there for spending. Yeah. And pr- there's a few reasons. One's called herd mentality. You know, humans seek comfort in groups. So you want to find out what your neighbor's doing, what your dad's doing, what other people are doing, read the papers. And the problem is, is most people are buying when the prices are rising mm-hmm. and selling when the prices are falling. Mm-hmm. It's, I know my, my securities professor, McMaster, you know, he always said, buy low, sell high. Yeah. And that way he started every day. Here's my tip today. And he had it in his Asian accent, buy low, sell high. Every day. <laughs> every day. Every day. Every day. Be- and that was how we started it every day because it's so funny. This is the this is a key to doing well, but we don't do it. Yeah. So the herd. And another one is called overconfidence bi- bias. Um, this is kind of interesting. If you had to say, are you a better than average driver, Scott? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> sure. I am for sure, too. I'd say excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Five star. Yes. Which makes it kind of hard because if 75% of the population says they're better than average drivers, you know somebody isn't. The bad ones are really bad. <laughs> <laughs> they're lowering the average. That's right. Yes. Uh, so it makes it difficult to pick. And it's kind of interesting. They did a, a monthly change in the stock prices and it's just dog's breakfast to see what the markets are doing. But if you look at the long haul, it is actually really smooth. Like the 20 year record, if you took 20 year chunks of the stock market, and uh, you have to take my word for it, it's, you know, nothing too wild. Sure. In fact, it's always been positive. If you held the markets for 20 years, it's never had a negative 20 year period. Mm-hmm. And now, again, most people's retirement yeah. is a third of their life, and generally well north of 20 years. So if you think of that, okay, I'm going to retire, and I'll probably be retired for 30 years. I retire at 60, I re- I'll live till 90. Not a far stretch, actually, these mm-hmm. days. It looked like the worst-case scenario, and again, this goes back quite a lot of years here, so I can't even imagine. It goes, I think, 1926. Oh, 1926, there we go. I think it's like 4% was the worst 20-year period, and it got as high as about 17%. And it's done that a few times for 20 years. But the nice thing is, there was never a negative ever. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at things in those- What was the lowest, sorry, what was the lowest? About 4%. 4%. And again, I'm looking at a line chart, so it doesn't actually yeah, yeah, yeah. look yeah. at it identically. Which isn't bad. But the line in the Still sand- Still beating inflation. <laughs> oh yeah, beating yeah. inflation. And, and the line in the sand, if you said the average 20 year was around 9%. Mm-hmm. So 9% average rate of return, all these things from 1926 all the way till now, so we're talking about 100 years of data, is positive. Then why does everyone want to sell? Yeah. Oh, I don't know what Trump's going to tweet tomorrow. I better sell and put it in bonds. It's never proven to be a good thing. You're losing 6% of your return by doing that. Mm-hmm. And guys are worse than girls. Mm-hmm. 
there's gender bias on this. Guys like to be called the testosterone effect. They like to be more in charge, right. which means they just lose more money. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Don't touch things. Just leave them alone. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. And there is an action bias. And I know, Andy, you've talked about this. It might be a couple of years ago. But humans are wired for action. Yeah. They will. They love to, they, they can't sit still. Mm-hmm. So if you're saying, okay, what should I do with my money? Leave it. That's not an option. I got to do something. Am I going to sell or am I going to buy? Put it on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. That's a Maybe hard just one. count it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Check that, your balance. That, you know, probably better to read the comics <laughs> than it is to read the, uh, what stock should I purchase today or sell? And because these are all the impact of different media outlets are affecting people's decisions. And people are actually getting, it's funny enough, we talk about this for, I don't know, 15 years now, and we've always talked about long-term investing. And people are actually getting shorter. Yeah. And ETFs are one of the worst ones for holding your money. And yet a lot of these uh, different commercials, they're ETF commercials. They're saving, yeah, you're, and as Andy was talking about, the little tax, the big tax. Well, the little tax would be, what is the fee for investment? Mm-hmm. The real one is, what was the result? Yeah. Okay, if you're going to save a little bit of money, but you're going to get a terrible result, is it's not worth it. Yeah. So humans are action biased. So they, they did a study of thousands of penalty kicks from professional soccer matches. Okay, and they also said 80% of um, shots went in. Right. Pretty good. You need nothing better than a penalty kick yeah. to win the game. And it was interesting. If you looked, the, the ball went down the middle 29% of the time. Mm. So if the ball's going right down the middle, practically a third of the time, what does the goalie do? Well, frequencies of kicks. It goes to the left 32% of the time. It goes to the right 39% of the time. And it goes down in the middle 29% of the time. And this is after thousands of kicks. Mm-hmm. So we're not far off. One third's going right, one third down the middle, and one third going to the left. Yeah, yeah. It's almost identical right across the board. The goalie. Are you the goalie that's going to sit in the middle and not move? Yeah. And you got 60,000 fans watching you, and you're supposed to make this big save, and you're going to stand in the middle? Not a chance. Staying in the middle, only 6% of the time did the goalie not move. Mm. 6%, even though 29% of the shots went right down the middle. Mm. 49% jump left, 45% jump left or right. Basically a flip of a coin, yeah. but rarely stood in the middle. And this is the same kind of managing your money. What should we do? Should we, should we, what should we move our money to? And so when it comes to having a proper financial plan, investment planning is part of it, but listen to your financial advisor and stick to the plan. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now. Leave a message. They'll get back to you. 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now, leave a message, they'll get back to you at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. Still talking about your behavior and investing. Yes, and, and a lot of us, and this is not really our fault, it's just the availability bias it's called. It's, it's the media of what information is available. So right now, if you were to say a stock, you may have heard a lot about, say, Facebook or, or Apple. You know, those are big highlight kind, or marijuana stocks. 
kind of uh, you know interesting news stories, mm-hmm. and you'll think, okay, they're up and down, but you you honestly don't know anything about say I don't know 3M or a, you know kind of a more of a boring stock, a Royal Bank lately or something like that. Well, the same goes with with investments, and if you look at it, you know what kills people more annual per year: lightning strikes or shark attacks. And you have to think about this as well. You know, what would you think, Scott, just off the top of your head? Uh, I think we arrived at uh, lightning strikes. Yes, and lightning strikes is the answer. But a lot of people, you know, you'd be forgiven if you got the wrong one. You thought it was shark attacks because there's been 170 news articles on sharks. Lots of reporting. Lots of reporting. Oh, look at Shark Week. Yeah. Shark Week, yeah. There you go. Only 11 articles on lightning. Yeah. There is no lightning week. There's no lightning week. Yeah. And yet the deaths, 26 deaths based on shark attacks, mm. but there was 974 deaths yeah. based on lightning. More people golfing than swimming. <laughs> yeah. right. But it doesn't make the news. And this is why it's difficult yeah. to start managing your portfolio based on media news, because sometimes you get, it's it's the sexier news that makes it, yeah. not necessarily what's helping you financially. Yeah, And I, you know, one of the things that I've often heard from clients in a conversation, even over like Thanksgiving weekend and talking with family mm-hmm. people, well, isn't the market's really volatile right now, isn't it? Mm. And, and I hear that throughout any period of, if you hear a lot in the news media, whether it's China trade recently or any, any of these issues, but volatility is always equal to your rate of return or your performance. Whenever they think risk or just your, even your rate of return. So they think there's a lot of volatility out there. I must be doing poorly. Right. Uh, My my rate of return must be terrible. Most Mm -hmm. people thought the last quarter was negative. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because they keep hearing about volatility Mm -hmm. and they think that that volatility automatically means that you're getting a bad return. Mm -hmm. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Volatility happens all the time, Mm -hmm. but return is something that has to be measured over an extended period. Obviously you can have performance short-term and long-term, but uh, over the long-term, and as Don was saying earlier, it's still been a great year with the market up 17%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, even though all that volatility has been happening throughout this time period, we're still doing very well mm-hmm. from a performance standpoint. So number one thing, takeaway, volatility does not equal poor performance. Mm. Okay. But uh, anyway, just switching gears a little bit, one of the things that, um, that Don and I are required to do by our regulators, and this is because both of us are CFP, Certified Financial Planners. And as part of our uh, industry regulations, we are required to provide to clients something we call a letter of understanding. And a letter of understanding, and it can be different depending on which Mm -hmm. company you're with, but from a CFP perspective, it basically is, covers key areas to explain to a client or a potential new client how you're going to be engaged with them, what they can expect from us Mm -hmm. as your financial planner, and also what we expect from them Mm -hmm. in terms of the engagement process as well. So this is called a letter of understanding. It's a requirement by the CFP, if you are a CFP, to provide this to every client. And so when looking at our own IG private wealth management letter of understanding that we give to clients, it's actually five pages long, uh, but it's fairly straightforward in terms of its communication. And each section that we look at and go over with a client requires the client to initial that we've read it or we've reviewed it and that they agree. Mm -hmm. And so uh, to start off with, the first area is in terms of our process and our timelines as well. The planning process 
it, sometimes it takes longer or less time to, yeah. to actually provide or create a financial plan, but the whole process, right, is trying to help you create a living plan. And we call it a living plan because we know life changes. Mm-hmm. And as it, it, it's a living plan, breathing plan, it's going to evolve as you evolve as well. So basically, we're looking for you to come back to us. If your family circumstance changes or your life circumstance changes, you have to come back to us and mm-hmm. tell us. We can't guess. So, yeah, <laughs> and that's going to help us in terms of making sure that your living plan is up to date and that we're taking advantage of all possible strategies to accomplish your goals. The next area is our philosophy. And we've talked about financial well-being before and a financial well-being score. But in terms of optimizing someone's financial well-being, uh, we look at six key areas, your retirement, your cash flow, your business success preparing for the unexpected, managing cash flow, and sharing your wealth or estate planning. The next area is access to experts. So I know, you know, it might sound, we know everything, but we don't. Mm -hmm. So we have to rely on experts in other areas within our organizations. So IG Private Wealth Management, we have access to advanced financial planning experts, wealth planning specialists, and each member of our team, whether it's an accountant, our estate lawyers, pension experts, insurance specialists, they all have the credentials that are necessary, but we're going to be sharing some of your personal information with them in order to gain more insight and to understand more opportunities for Mm -hmm. yourself. The next area is is based on uh, partnership and disclosure. And really what, again, we're talking about here is you need to inform us the, with all about the information that we need to be able to do a proper plan, your goals, your assets and liabilities, your tax returns, your copies of your wills and power of attorney, insurance policies, employment benefits, and any other relevant legal documents, etc. And again, forming us of any changes, and then finally providing us the opportunity to present recommendations. So not only is it important to get the information from you, but you have to be able to make yourself available so yeah. that we can meet and review these things. And And then finally, we get into um, going green. So whether you want to receive paper or not receive paper, and you can turn that on or off. Our commitment to your financial well-being solutions also means being prepared for the unexpected. So we look at different insurance products and services that we can access. Protecting your plan, our compensation, any conflicts of interest. This usually uh, happens if there's been a divorce or perhaps uh, we're dealing with one of a family member. And then finally, confidentiality and then frequency of communication. So mm-hmm. that might be email, face-to-face, et cetera. All of that's provided in a letter of understanding, and it's important that everybody gets one if you're dealing with a CFP. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now. They'll get back to you, 905-529-7165, and check out their website at andyanddon.com. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks a lot, Scott. Have a great week. Thank you, Scott.